Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. It is uh, truth. Our labor's not in vain, our spiritual labor, our, our actual physical labor, our parenting, uh, our, our work lives. It's not in vain because you're with us, and our faith is not in vain either. And we pray that you would root us more deeply into this faith of ours, more deeply into Christ. We pray that your word would do that as we encounter it this morning. Give us your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Jacob, we've been looking at the life of Jacob since Christmas. And one of the things, one of the themes of the Jacob life is struggle from the very beginning. They're in the womb, Jacob and Esau striving, struggling with one another. And as soon as he enters into the world, leaves his mother's womb, there is struggle after struggle after struggle. That is Jacob's life. And it's also the Christian life. We gave the the image a few weeks ago. Imagine uh, yourself in a knee-deep creek, stream, and you're walking along, but you're walking with the current. It's It's a strong current. And what happens when we convert, when we enter into the Christian life, when we come to Jesus, we turn around in that stream and we start walking upstream. And there's three currents that we're walking against. Do you remember what they are? It's the world, right? The world in all of its ways. It's the flesh, our own sinful passions. We're all of a sudden in a fight with our own sinful nature. And it's also the devil, that there's a spiritual reality A spiritual war that's taking place that we must contend against now that we are on Jesus' team, you might say. So all of a sudden, our lives are marked by struggle. So how do we reckon with the challenge? Every week, we highlight a couple of things, right? Our our sin, we want to gain a a deeper, more um, thorough understanding of our sin, And at the same time, we want to gain a better knowledge of God's love and grace to us. Our our contention is that you are worse than you realize. Jack Miller says, cheer up, you're worse than you realize. But God's love for you is far greater than you could ever imagine. Okay, so those are two things that we emphasize. But here's here's my question. What do you do with that knowledge? What, What do you do? I mean, it's not something you just sit on. An awareness of our sin, an awareness of God's grace. What do we actually do with that knowledge? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Two things, two uh, foci for this morning. Repentance and ritual. Repentance and ritual. Those are the two topics this morning. Repentance, that may be a familiar term to you, I think. Ritual, you may be thinking, I don't know if I even like that word, ritual. Hang with me, we'll get there. But let's look at verse 1 here. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau way back decades ago. Return to Bethel, the place where God met you and you saw the the vision of the ladder coming down from heaven. Go back there is what God says. Now, this this verse right here is is incredible. It's a miracle. It's, It's an incredible grace of God because we have to remember all that's led up to this point. God created a world. He created a good world marked by flourishing, marked by harmony. Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator, rebelled against God, and put in place a steady 
unraveling of creation. And we saw that in Genesis chapters 4 through 11. But in Genesis chapter 12, God calls forth Jacob's grandfather, a man named Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do a great work with you. I'm going to do, I did my work of creation. I'm going to begin a work of new creation through you, through your family, a work of salvation, a work of redemption, sweeping promises. And yet Abraham and his son Isaac, and especially Jacob, they mess things up. They struggle. They sin big time. It almost seems as though they get worse by generation. Jacob is the most unlikable of the patriarchs, at least early on in his ways. And then last week, remember what we saw last week? The next generation, Jacob's sons, going vigilante on the Hivites, wiping out all the men of the city. Right? They took an injustice and they went out of control with it. And so in so many, and let me say this too, back in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob says, I will, when I come back to my father's land, because he's leaving the land and he's going to Laban, who lives in another part of the world, and he comes back and he says, when I return, back in chapter 28, he says, when I return to the land, I vow I will go to Bethel, back to where the Lord appeared to him. Last week he wasn't in Bethel, he wasn't even supposed to be there. He was in Shechem. He stopped short. So Jacob, we might say this, Jacob is out of God's will for his life. That's where he is. And then God shows up. God speaks to him. He looks, God could have easily said, Jacob, I'm done with you. I've had enough. You guys have failed me one time too many. But God doesn't do that. His grace keeps coming. He speaks to Jacob and he invites him. He says, come back on track. Come back, come back to Bethel. Return to Bethel. And that's how God's grace is. It doesn't let up. It keeps coming at us. If we are God's people, his grace keeps coming our way. And here's the thing. We, we think that we kind of test his limits. Like, sure, God, he forgave me when I first came to faith, but now after the umpteenth time that I failed in this area, his mercies, it, it may have run out. It may have run out. Listen to what Dane Ortland says. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain this vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at an arm's length. But that's not, what, that's not what he does. That's not what God's grace does. And that's not what God is doing with this family here. God is with this family. And he's staying with them. And God speaks, and Jacob responds. Look at verse 2. What does Jacob do? He says to his household and to everyone that is with him, he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. Change your garments. Let us arise. Let us go to Bethel. I will make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. In a word, what Jacob does here in his family is they repent. They repent. 
And he leads his whole household in repentance. Now, you may say, well, what's repentance? It's what Jacob does. It's turning away from sin, confessing it, turning away with it, and turning, and actually not just doing that, killing sin, burying sin. That's what he does, right? He, he buries the gods, buries it, and then turns to find new life in God, turns to God. That's what repentance is. It's a change of course. It's a change of course. Turning from sin and turning to God. And so I, I want us to see about repentance, I want us to see five um, aspects of repentance that we see here in this passage. The first um, aspect is that repentance buries sin. It buries it. It kills it and buries it. Repentance turns from sin, and it's not just moving sin like kind of tucking it away in a far pocket corner of our heart. It's killing it. It's uprooting it. It's destroying it. It's demolishing it. It's mortifying it. Burying it. That's what Jacob does. He buries the gods. And here's an important point. Behind all sin is false worship. Martin Luther said, if we're disobeying any of the Ten Commandments, we're definitely disobeying the first commandment, have no other gods before me. That every other act of disobedience stems from a deeper um, failure of worship. That we've put some God in place of God, in place of the Lord God Almighty. And think about it, last chapter, chapter 34, all of the household of Jacob, struggling, sinning, failing. Jacob, his, his daughter has been sexually assaulted and is held captive by her assaulter. And Jacob doesn't seem to care. He doesn't do anything. He's quiet. His brothers, on the other hand, man, they respond, and boy, do they respond, right? They deceive the whole village. They go and they slaughter the people, the Hivites. Dinah has problems. And then this week, look, we're, we're, get, we're, lift, we're look, taking a look under the hood of Jacob's household. And look, guess what? There's disobedience within the family. And guess what's right there with it? Household foreign gods. There's idolatry in Jacob's household. And that's, that's how sin always is. Underneath the sin, there's always some, some idol that's captivated our hearts, that's grabbed us. And our hearts are resistant to turning from sin. We don't want to do it. We don't want to confess it. We don't want to put it out there for God. And so we, we delay oftentimes. Maybe just give it a little time and the, kind of the edge of the sin will, will wear off after some time. Um, we, there's even, here's another interesting, subtle, subtle way that we resist sin. Have you ever confessed something along these lines? Lord, I can't believe what I just did. Ever so subtly, in that little comment, is a little pocket of self-righteousness in our hearts. Lord, I can't believe what I did. I'm not that kind of person that just did what I did. It's, a, it's, it's uncharacteristic of me. I'm really better than that. Forgive me. Not realizing that, no, what you did is what is actually in your heart. It came from there, and your heart really is that Wicked. It's a full reckoning of our sin before God. Not an effort to retain any sort of self-righteousness. It's a, die, it's, it's a turning from our sin, dying to it, killing it, and as Jacob does, burying it. 
in the ground where it can no longer live. That's the first step of repentance. So burying sin. The second thing that repentance does, the second feature, is that repentance is a return to where we started. It's a return to where we started. Jacob is returning back to where he started his walk with God, where God first appeared to him. Back when he appeared to him in chapter 28, right? The, the, the vision that God gave him there at Bethel. And he's returning back to there. And that's how we move forward in this Christian life. We move forward by going back to where we started. Did you know that? Move forward by going back to where you, you started. We turn from our sin and we go back to Christ, right? Jesus is the way in to the faith. So we go back to Jesus. He's not only the way into the faith, but he's the way up toward holiness. Jesus is the way in, and he's the way up. And here Jacob, we have, he's, he's actually going literally back to where he started his faith journey in Genesis chapter 28, where God appeared to him. He's going back to the start. Now, we can forget that. It's easy for us to think, okay, so I get into the Christian life through Jesus And then I sort of grow in holiness through my own kind of resolve and grit. And this pops up oftentimes in our repentance, doesn't it? Lord, forgive me for my sin. I'm not going to do that again. I promise never to do that again. Maybe we say, I promise never to do that again. In other words, we, we base our turn back to God, not on Christ, but on our own resolve to do better next time. I'll, I'll get it right next time, God, I promise. That's, that's basing our sanctification on our own resolve to do better. It's not going back to where we started, not going back to Christ. And that's what, that's what our call is. Remember Peter? Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to deny me. And he says, never, I'll never do that. But he was wrong. He based his sort of moving forward in that based on his own resolve. Not saying, Jesus, you're Lord, I need you. No, I won't do that, Lord. You know, two, like I said, we've said this before, we, we highlight two things every week, our sin and God's grace, our sin and God's grace. And the point, the, the reason we do that is not to just give us this knowledge, it's to spark in us repentance. That's the goal, repentance. It is, repentance is the cadence of the Christian life. It, it, it's something that doesn't just happen when we come to faith, it's ongoing, it happens daily. Remember Peter at Pentecost, the people, the, the Jews from all over the world say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, believe in Jesus and be baptized. It's the way in, right? But in the Gospels, it also speaks of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That this walk of repentance is the cadence of the Christian life, turning from our sin, turning to Christ and finding life. In other words, the way in is the way up toward holiness. The way in through Christ is also the way toward holiness in Christ. We got in through Christ, and we get made more like Jesus through Christ. And Luther, he, he said this in his 95 Theses, which was his big statement that sparked the Protestant Reformation. He says repentance is a way of life. It's an ongoing thing. And the scriptures agree. I mean, in Joel chapter 2, um, the, the, the priest is described as putting on his, his, his priestly garments in, in the vestibule and making his way toward the altar. And God says, between you putting on your garments and the five-minute, two-minute walk to the altar, 
Repent. Repent. Keep coming back to me, turning from your sin, coming back to me. It's, it's the cadence of our lives. Okay, so that's the second thing. Repentance. So repentance buries sin. The second thing is repentance is returning to where we started. The third thing is that repentance begins with God. We don't believe that if we have our music amped up right, or if I just start raising my voice and pounding this pulpit, or we engage in some other form of manipulation, that we can like, create in you a response. We have to have the Spirit. It begins with God. And here in this passage right here, it begins with God, right? Verse 1, God comes to Jacob and pulls him out. He speaks to him, and Jacob responds. And so it is in our life. It begins with God. Our repentance begins as a, as a work of the Spirit. Now, that may come, that work of the Spirit may come as we emotionally engage in a song or a sermon or a confession. It takes all of who we are, emotions, mind, pulls it together, Spirit pulls it together and sparks a response in our hearts. But it's the Spirit's work. And this is kind of scary because, like, you can't be the Holy Spirit to your spouse who you want to see change, or to your children who need to change, or teachers to your students, or bosses to your workers. You can't, it's the Spirit. We're dependent on the work of the Spirit. We can pray that the Spirit would move and convict areas where conviction needs, needs to happen. But it's dependent upon the work of God and the work of the Spirit. The second, I'm sorry, the fourth thing, so that's the third thing, it begins with God. The fourth thing, rapid fire. Repentance leads to tangible action. How do you know if you've repented? There's tangible action that you've seen. Jacob Jacob here actually does something. Like he's, they're, they're pulling the, Idols off the shelves, out of the tents, out of the whatever. And he's taking them, he's carrying them, and he throws them in the ground, and he pours dirt over them, and their family literally moves to another place. That's action. And, you know, since we've been in Genesis, you, you all have been very encouraging to me, and, and, and personally for me as well, this has been a, a very, um, feel as though God's Spirit's at work in, in all of this, and, and I've been encouraged, but is the Spirit at work? Here's the real test. Here's the real test. How have you changed since we've been in Genesis? What tangible actions have you taken? What fruit is there from, of repentance in your life, since we, maybe since, we've been, since you've been coming here? If, if the Spirit of God is at work, there are, ta- there are evidences of that work around us and in our lives. And we see that in Jacob's life. He actually does something. The fifth thing that I want us to see about repentance is that it's not self-improvement. Repentance is self-dying. It's not self-improvement. It's self-dying. It's, it's, it's dying to ourselves and finding new life in Christ. And we see that in the name change. Jacob, again, reiterated the change from Jacob to Israel. That's his new name. That name is given here. He becomes the new person. That's what repentance does. It, It remakes us as we turn from sin and turn to find life in Christ. Turn from sin. Turn to find life in Christ every day, 
every hour. I mean, anytime you feel a conviction of sin, turn, find life in Christ. That it's it's transforming, and it doesn't feel great at the time. It feels like a death. Think about uh, physical your physical body. How how do you make your physical body stronger? You're involved in like CrossFit or some sort of strength training. How do you do it? You kill your muscles. You put them to death. You put them through a, just a weakening process. And the more you feel kind of like noodle arms and noodle legs and the more like in, in, incapable of doing anything, you are following a workout, well, then you're going to have, your body's going to respond. You're going to get stronger. You're, you're going to be built up. That's how, the, that's how your physical strength comes. And so it is with spiritual strength. It's, it's, it's becoming our spiritual. The, confessing our sins every week, it can be debilitating. It can be discouraging. It breaks us down. But we're crucifying ourselves. And we're turning back to find life in Christ. And we're strengthened. We're made stronger. That's how the spiritual life happens. That's, that's what repentance is doing to us. So repentance is key to your spiritual growth. This is the reason we talk about sin and the reason we talk about God's grace is to help provide the framework for this life of repentance. It's to help us believe, talking about our sin, that yeah, you can go there. You can go to those deep, dark places of your sin because God can handle it because His grace is so incredibly bigger than anything you can imagine. You can do that every hour and you can keep doing it and He keeps receiving you. That's what, that's, that's what we're trying to help us do in, in our lives is Live in a walk of repentance. And he can, he can handle it. He can handle our sin. So, the life of faith is one of the ways in which we resist all of the struggle of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's one of the ways, but it's not the only way. We also uh, turn to Ritual. Now, look at what Jacob does following his repentance from sin. He, he has this transforming encounter with God. Again, the name change. And then look at verses 14 and 15. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. What he's doing right here in this action of, of create, building an altar and pouring out a drink offering and then pouring oil on the rock, he's engaging in, in a ritual. Now, ritual kind of has a not, maybe not a great connotation. We think of something that's rote and sort of mindless and we're just kind of going through the motions. But ritual is, is unavoidable. It's, we all have rituals. We all have family rituals, personal rituals. Maybe it's a cup of coffee every morning. Maybe it's as a family, we watch movies and eat pizza on Friday night. Maybe we do play this board game every so often. Maybe we have this pattern at Christmas time. This is how people live their lives. We're always engaging in some sort of ritual or, or practice. And what I mean by ritual is just an, an ordered practice that gives structure to our life. That's, what, that's all a ritual is. Now, listen, Walter Brueggemann says this on this passage here, one, one, a commentator. He says, just like Genesis 34, okay, the passage we looked at last week, the, the, the defilement of, of Dinah and the slaughter of the, um, the Hivites, 
Just like that chapter, chapter 34, this text knows that faithfulness in the land among the Canaanites is risky business. But this text knows, as chapter 34 doesn't, that Israel cannot either leave the land or kill all the Canaanites. Two options, right? You've got tons of resistance in the land, Jacob does. How's he going to live? How's he going to make his way? Well, he could leave, but that's not an option. This is where God has called him. He could kill the people. That's not good either. Israel must find a way to stay in the land with the Canaanites and yet be faithful. So how, how does he do it? How does he stay in the land and do it? And Brueggemann says the answer is ritual. God's people engage in practices of worship that shape them as a distinct community with their neighbors. Okay, that's, that's, that's what they do, and that's what he's doing here in this act of, of pouring oil and a drink offering and building an altar to God. And hey, this is, this is a struggle for all God's people throughout the history. The, the people of Israel struggle with, uh, on the one hand, so how do you relate to the world? On the one hand, there's the struggle of accommodation. On the other, there's the struggle of angry, violent resistance or retreat. Okay, and you know, during Jesus' time, there were, there were camps that did both of those things. There were the, the Sadducees that had accommodated their theology, uh, disc- discrediting certain pieces of their theology that didn't jive with the Greek culture around them. And so they sort of changed things up, accommodated. There were the Zealots, on the other hand, that were like, let's, let's kill them all. Let's kill the Romans. They had their swords. They were sharpening their swords all the time. They, were, they had a chip on their shoulder. They were ready to go to battle. Both those camps. And we see something similar in our own day. Mainline liberal denominations have thrown the, the, all the key doctrines of our faith out the window. The, um, the gospel, um, the, the propitiation, propiti- propitiation of Christ on the cross for our sins, the resurrection, uh, Christian sexual, uh, historic Christian understanding of human sexuality out the window, doesn't jive, get it out. We don't want to do that. Evangelicals have kind of done their own accommodating in recent times. Um, let's see, and it's not, it's not doctrinal, it's more methodological. Let's see if we can, the people want an entertaining uh, experience. So let's, let's get kind of concert quality. Let's have very celebrity, pastor, um, you know, the people, they're consumers. So let's, let's try to mirror what, what the people experience in a shopping. This is an, these are accommodations being made to how worship happens. And then on the other side, there are zealots, I think, even in our own day. This, what, what's been described as Christian nationalism. It's a sad uh, testimony that on the day that our, our capital was being stormed violently, sprinkled throughout the crowds were Jesus posters, Bible verses, references to John 3.16. Using the faith with, with American politics and with a particular political party, right? That's, that's falling off the other side of the horse. Not putting our hope and trust in Christ in the way of the cross. And hey, Christianity calls us to be civically engaged and to be involved in politics. Those are good things. But there's a point where your involvement in politics takes on idolatry and, 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 and you've You've abandoned the cross for the way of political power. 
And uh, there are many, I believe, in our own culture that have done that. And it's sad, to me, it's sad for me to see people that I've respected and appreciated their works that have seemingly fallen into this Christian nationalism uh, understanding of the faith. So, Jacob is presented with the same challenge. How do I deal with the world that does not comport with my faith? Do I accommodate to it? Do I violently engage it? Engage it? What do I do? I can't leave. I can't kill everybody. So what does he do? This is what Jacob does. Ready? It's our response too. How do we engage a world that we don't doesn't jive with the faith? How do we do it? He worships his God and he makes use of powerful symbolic action. He builds an altar, he pours an offering, he pours oil upon the stone. And we're called to do the same, I believe. That every, every church has a liturgy. And our, our object, every church has a pattern. Every, every church has a pattern, a liturgy, a way of going about it. We've tried to design this service in a way that retells the gospel every week. So, we, we're, so he, he, think about the order of the service. We want it all to be about Jesus, the sermon, the preaching, the songs, the confessions, all of it to be in orbit around Jesus. But think about, think about the whole trajectory of it. We come in and we're called to worship. All humans are called to worship their God. We're going to worship apart. Uh, we're going to worship no matter what. But our, our fulfillment, our, our peace comes when we turn to our creator God and fall to him in worship. So we're called to worship. And then we sing a song and then we Confess our sins. That's the big problem. We're called to worship God, but we can't because of our sins. So we confess those sins. And we're reminded that the basis upon which we stand before Creator God is Christ and His mercy to us. And so we receive the assurance of faith. And then we move on in the service. We hear about Jesus in the sermon. We, we come to the table and we receive the bread and the wine and are reminded of Christ's love. And all of that generosity of God is to spark within us gratitude that then gives back. Through a time of offering. But it's not just financial. It's, it's, it's preparing us to go out into the world with our time, with our talent, and to serve the Lord. And so we're called. We're charged to go out with God's good word, his benediction to us. You see the gospel arc of the service? It's designed to root us in Christ. That's the goal, to retell the gospel. And I know not, not everybody likes it. Believe me, I know. I hear um, and that's okay. Uh, I, I, would, I would say, uh, give it a year, see what happens. And l- let me try, and by the way, this is, this is historic, it's time-tested. Churches for millennia have followed a similar order to the service. And here, here's the claim. These patterns, these habits that we're creating, they're providing a trellis for the life of repentance. They're providing a framework, a foundation for a walk with Jesus. You know, Christian, or I'm sorry, not Christian. James Smith is a philosopher, and he's, he's written a lot on this topic, like five books on this very topic, and very, been very influential books. But he says, you know, how, the, the way that we create a habit in our lives is through immersion in communities of practice that run you through rhythms of rituals and routines 
Okay, so it's a community practicing together regularly, going through rhythms and uh, rituals and routines. And over time, a habit is formed in our hearts. A habit is formed. And that's what we believe is happening. We're being, habit is formed. Think, maybe think of it this way. When, when I was a kid in the 1980s, we, our family went to Chicago. We went to um, Old Kaminsky Park. The la- I believe it was the last season that they played there. And they were playing the Yankees. And my, my dad said, look, look who's batting over there with the tee in warm-ups, batting practice before the game started. And it was, at the time, one of the best hitters in baseball, Don Mattingly. He's just taking cuts one after another, off the tee, off the tee, off the tee. And I was like, you know, is he five? What, what's Don, what's going on here? Can you not hit a real ball? No. You think, well, that looks pretty rote and so basic. No, he's, he's creating a habit. He's, he's making his swing second nature so that when it's the bottom of the ninth and men are in scoring positions and there's two outs, he's not even thinking up there. He's just muscle memory and habit is producing a result. You, you see the same thing in all sorts of sports. You know, two seconds left. The, the NBA player hits a fadeaway three-pointer. The play breaks down. Shoots this horrible three. Goes in. Why did it go in? Did he get lucky? No, because behind that shot were hours and reps, thousands and thousands of reps and hours in the gym practicing for that very moment. Okay? When we recite scripture, when we confess our sins, when we're called to worship, all of this is habituating us. It's, cre- it's creating a framework for us. We, I, I worked in schools, um, this school actually, in a, another school in Iowa, we did these kinds of practices, and uh, one of the students tragically lost a brother, unexpectedly, tragically, and said, I now understand why we do all these, why we recite scripture together and sing songs together and do all of these practices together. Because I was at a complete loss when my brother died. I had no words. I had nothing to do. And I fell back into all of the scripture that I had memorized. I fell back into all the prayers that we had prayed together. I fell back. And that's what, that's what liturgy does. That's what ritual does. That's what ritual does. It's stockpiling the treasures of our faith for when our souls encounter a spiritual desert. Right? We're stockpiling all the treasures of our faith for when we encounter a spiritual desert. And we will eventually encounter that. And so what will you fall back on? We want to fall back into the, into the treasures of our faith. So... These are the bones of the Christian life. Two bones at least, there's probably more. But repentance and and ritual. They are the means by which God's Spirit shapes us. Eugene Peterson has said that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And Jacob here, Jacob's growing. It's very slow, at times it's uneven. But he's growing, God is working on him. Even amidst the messiness, the spiritual toxicity of Laban and his household and now the Canaanites and the toxicity of their culture. But nonetheless, Jacob's growing. And he's, he's not just improving as a person. He's being completely transformed as a person. He's being transformed into a new being. And so are we. Jacob's spiritual descendants. In Christ, the Spirit, through repentance and rituals, transforming us into new people. And and think about this. What's the way in? 
of the faith? It's Christ and his death and resurrection for us, right? The pivot point of all of history, all of history pivots on this act, the death of God on a cross and the resurrection. Guess what? The pivot point for your own life follows that same pattern. It's repentance. Your life changes on repentance where you die, self. Here's the thing. That sounds bad, right? Dying. I don't want to die. But in the Christian economy, what follows death every time? Resurrection. There's new life on the other side of that death. And that's the promise. That's the gospel promise we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for what it speaks to us. Uh, We pray that you would drill these things down into us. Make us, be, make us into people of repentance that are quick to recognize our own sin and quick to believe in your love for us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.